You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 22nd of March 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller. On today's show... We're going to London to stop the Brexit betrayal. Good morning. A tale of two marches as the march to leave is reduced to a few dozen Brexiter zealots last seen somewhere in South Yorkshire. London prepares to host a rather larger pro-EU gathering tomorrow, but will either make any difference? My guests Daniel Bates, Melkin Charchoglian and Carlotta Ribello will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including a list of the world's most expensive cities and whether they're necessarily worth it, New York State's decision to turn down an apparent licence to print money, and are there some cities which just can't be made safe for cyclists? That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Monocle's Melkin Charchoglian and Daniel Bates, who are both here in Studio One, and Carlotta Ribello, who joins us from our Los Angeles Bureau. Welcome all, and we will start here in London, which tomorrow seems likely to host a sizable protest march by those who hold the view that Brexit on form seems unlikely to be quite the smooth ride to sunlit uplands promised in the brochures, and that a rethink might therefore be in order. In a not unrelated development north of three and a half million people have now signed a petition on the British Parliament's website which goes further than the putative demand of tomorrow's march, i.e. a second referendum, and recommends just yanking the plug on the entire enterprise by revoking Article 50. A thought should perhaps also be spared for the march to leave, which is now a few dozen Brexiter ultras who set off from Sunderland at the weekend, last seen somewhere south of Doncaster. Um, Daniel and Melkin here in London, I will ask you both both first. Do either of you plan to attend tomorrow? Uh, no, not this point, but I could be persuaded, I think. I could be persuaded. Uh, Malcolm? I don't think I will be either. I don't know what I, what has to be gained from it. I, I just don't think it could possibly sway the agenda at all. The government knows it, you know. By you going or you know, like half, a lot of people? Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. The government knows what I want. But, a you know, spokesman the, from Number 10 acknowledged that while the crowd was extremely large, Melkin Charchoglin wasn't there, so therefore they're not minded to take it seriously. It's the same thing as the position. The government knows that half the country does not want to leave. And them turning up on the square in millions won't make any difference. You know, the, mm. the, it, won't, it won't present the government with any new source of information that they don't already have. Uh, Daniel, do you think, though, that a, a gesture like that, especially if it is a a big turnout running into the several hundred thousand uh, plus when you recommend when you add that rather to the the three and a half million signatures and counting now on mm. the just pull the plugs petition does all that kind of thing add at some level to the pressure on a government i mean a government that at some point presumably though they're not acting like it will want to be re-elected mm. i think so and when it's that public when it's that in your face i think that definitely keeps up the pressure people are there people are being seen and and when you've got that many you know signatories even if many of them are by bots andrew we don't know but you know no, they're, pro- they're yeah. almost certainly not mm. it's very they, the people who set up that website have thought of that you yeah. do need to, you do need mm. to very you can't you can't sign it twice from the same email yeah. address for but, example 
larger marches than before, if that's continuing to grow, if people are still getting out on the streets, obviously, and, and not only complaining on Twitter uh, and in the newspapers, I think uh, definitely it makes for, uh, for an important statement and... I think the government has to listen. Um, Carlotta, we should continue, We should consider the opposite end of this, expectrum, this spectrum, which is uh, March to Leave. Um, wonderfully, I have been enjoying the spectacle of some, both participants and sympathisers in March to Leave, complaining that the BBC, Sky News and the like are not covering the march. Um, this is probably, I'm guessing, from the point of view of BBC and Sky News, that a a crowd of maybe three dozen people walking down a road is not necessarily a news story. Um, do you feel at all sorry for them, Carlotta? Should we send them some sandwiches? Well, apparently they have uh, 20 million people joining them in spirit, in so spirit, I can understand why it's quite yes. difficult to cover um, if you're a, a journalist to try to uh, get some Fox Pops out of them. Um, I don't think uh, anyone should feel sorry at all by anyone that campaigns uh, for leaving the EU, and especially this particular group of people. Um, so I'm not, I'm, I wish them the best success for this march, which if already, you know, uh, draws at least a couple thousands. It's not too embarrassing, I guess. Um, Malcolm, the question that always strikes me, though, and this is a reductio ad absurdum of it, is that there's always a certain amount, I think, of narcissism around anybody who attends a protest march or demonstration that you think this mm -hmm. is important enough for me to go and do this. And, you know, I speak as somebody who has been to a few. Um, I may even be there tomorrow. But it is that thing that you assume that this is the most important thing going on in the world. Uh, and that's where I think the indignation at insufficient coverage comes from. But is it arguable, in fact, that the media overvalues uh, demonstrations and is overly drawn to them because they're an easy spectacle? I mean, the yellow vests in France, for example, which we will talk about shortly, last week was estimated at maybe 30,000 people worldwide, according to the France's interior ministry. And that got huge coverage all over the world. Paris Saint-Germain get more than that at home. It's not actually that many people. No, that's true. But I, I think the funny thing is about protests is that the tipping point between something colossal happening and, and, uh, and you know, the government taking notice and the opposite of that is it's very fine. At one point, it's just a narcissistic crowd of people chanting and nothing happens. And then the next, you know, could be something like the Gilets Jaunes, where suddenly the, the government comes to a standstill and action needs to be taken. There is a great deal of narcissism involved. But at the end of the day, you simply have to turn up and be there in in you know in in a large enough number for something to happen, uh, so I completely agree with the idea that you have to turn up and protest, um, but but yeah, it's it's a very fine margin when something does actually happen. Um, Carlotta, do you think though you actually need to turn up? And I wish to make it clear that I'm absolutely not encouraging anybody uh, and break things uh, in order to get on television. Because if we return again to the example of the yellow vests who are planning to demonstrate again this weekend in Paris, though precautions such as roping off the Champs Elysees have now been taken, if they hadn't smashed things up and set fire to stuff, would anybody be paying any attention at all? Or would they just look like a bunch of fat middle-aged men in high-vis jackets who aren't allowed to see their children at weekends? Well, it would be uh, very uh, likely that if things hadn't turned violent, the media coverage, at least internationally, wouldn't have been as uh, broad and everywhere as we've seen. And yes, we're not encouraging anyone to riot, but uh, that is one of the main differences when you talk about, you know, uh, demonstrations and rioting. Uh, a riot demands that uh, politicians step up and 
you know, they have to uh, be accountable. They do have to uh, show up and face the crowd eventually. Whereas with peaceful demonstrations, it's easy to, you know, uh, just issue some um, statement or to get a, a spokesperson to deliver the message without actually, you know, the head of state having to step in. And um, it is a fine line in between them. Uh, and I, I guess one of the lessons from the Gilets Jaunes movement is just how, it, when you compare both, they achieved the goal that they wanted, which was the international recognition to, for Macron to step up and, you know, at least the grand tour of debates that he went around the country, you know, to start a conversation. Of course, there are other demands that uh, they want, but what started it all um, was that they weren't being heard. And here we are, you know, speaking about an issue that is not, you know, related to, to the UK or anything else, and they their voice was heard throughout the world. So it's a fine line, and we need to be and, and it needs to be thread carefully. Okay, well, let us now take a long, hard look at the Economist Intelligence Unit's annual survey of the cities in which it is most expensive to live. The EIU arrives at its conclusions by using New York, itself no bargain, as a benchmark and then pricing 150-odd products or services. This year's most expensive cities are Singapore, Paris and Hong Kong, closely followed by Zurich and Geneva. Others on the top ten rungs, there were some ties, included Copenhagen, Osaka, Tokyo, Seoul, Copenhagen. I've said that twice. It's really expensive. And New York. Uh, Bargain hunters looking at the other end of the table, propped up this year by Damascus and Caracas, might want to consider that there might be other associated drawbacks. Uh, Melkin, are there any surprises here to you about what's in the top ten and what isn't? London, for example, is not. Yeah, I was very much surprised by I'm surprised by um, Tel Aviv. Um, I thought I know Tel Aviv is a fairly premium des- destination, uh, you know, on the east, uh, east coast of the Mediterranean, but I didn't realise that um, you know, it was actually expensive to live there. I thought it would just be expensive to go on holiday. Um, but apart from that, it's, it's all the usual suspects. Osaka, uh, that's a little bit surprising. Um, Japan is expensive. Mm. I mean, it's a long Japan time since I went to Japan, yes. but it is, it is is not cheap. I am I am unsurprised, especially of my last uh, monocle assignment to Zurich, to see that oh, God. in the top four. <laughs> I, I am still wincing at the recollection of settling a, a cafe bill for myself and the photographer. Two bagels, four cups of coffee, £45. Jesus. <laughs> Charge you to sneeze on the street, uh, uh, Well, in, indeed so. Um, is there a correlation, though, do you think, Daniel, between price and quality in these in these cities in the top 10 and they are they are all great cities are you necessarily getting what you're paying for in some cases i think a lot of those cities have great things to offer that don't really rely on you having a lot of money any of those cities there would be wonderful if you did have a lot of money i think a lot of them you can get so much out of by just being there i mean new york city paris hong kong these are wonderful destinations so you do get what you pay for. I would say, I would argue, you know, living close to the center in New York City, living in Manhattan, uh, living in, in, in central Hong Kong, these these are wonderful places. Los Angeles on there, I think in some cases you do get what you pay for. Copenhagen is probably the one we have to really highlight there because that, that more correlates with sort of the monocle view of quality of life. And, and, and that, I think, you really would get a lot out of out of living there. The other ones, I'm not so sure. Singapore, um, Singapore. I think there's a lot of question marks there. I think also a lot of these cities. Um, these are cities where there's all the, the biggest sort of gap between 
uh, how one spectrum of the of the population lives in the other. So Indeed. you know, so, say yeah. yeah, so say New York, you, you're, you're paying for very high quality of life there, and you're kind of surrounded by this wealth and infrastructure. But at the same time, if you don't have any money, mm. you're you're yeah, you're you're in, probably living in, in incredibly uh, terrible conditions. Same with LA, you know, the the, the poverty levels of projects in LA. Uh, so these are actually cities with a huge disparity. Um, I, w- I, w- I wouldn't necessarily be proud to be on, on that list if I were any of them. Yeah. Uh, Carlotta, there is quite an overlap between the EIU's list of most expensive cities and, and Monocle's quality of life survey, Tokyo, Zurich, Copenhagen, uh, all in the top 10 of both. Uh, do you have any particular favourite underdog cities that are you know, not all that expensive, uh, perhaps slightly overlooked, uh, and I'm going to disqualify you right away from saying Lisbon, which was, <laughs> which was number 12 on Monocle's quality of life index last time out well if i can't tell lisbon then i'll well, let's go up two hours by car and say porto <laughs> <laughs> um i mean it, it is quite difficult when you uh, when you know we're so used to having uh, a look at these lists and uh, the metrics that we use to see you know what makes these cities um good and what makes them tick and what uh, what are the, the the aspects that give them that this quality of life that we like to describe and you know it, it is, there's an overlap between, you know, the most expensive cities in the world and what the cities that make our, Monocle's own list. But then you have other factors, you know, like um, the amount of connections from um, international connections from an airport or uh, how many museums the city has. Uh, and even, you know, looking at um, uh, how much, you know, uh, travel uh, pub- on public transit costs. And these are things that obviously, when you look at the city, uh, most expensive cities, don't want to get into those metrics, but ultimately is what makes a city's you know quality of life and um, exactly that um, inequality that Melkin was referring to that we see in so many on this list. Uh, it, it, it is these small uh, factors that at least bring that equity a bit um, uh, more, bridges the gap and makes that you know a bit more affordable, I guess. Uh, Melkin, is it a a perhaps heretical, 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 however the hell do you pronounce that word? <laughs> you know what I'm getting at? Suggestion that London. And I realise that there's an inbuilt fallacy to this argument. If you remove the monstrous cost of actually living in it in terms of paying rent and so forth, London, I think, is actually quite good value in many respects in terms yeah. of stuff that you can go and do and see with while paying either nothing at all or not terribly much. No, exactly. As Daniel said, there are a lot of cities where you can simply be present and get a lot out of them, and that's London. We London has a huge amount of green space, beautiful parks, um, uh, yeah, free museums. So you, you could do London on the cheap if you've kind of uh, planned it. You don't have to go and spend six pounds on a pint in Soho. You know, you can go a little bit outside and pay significantly less. You can actually eat quite well in London for not obnoxious amounts of money as well. Exactly. It just requires mm. a lot of planning. It's just things like, you know, the tube, the most expensive tube system in the world. It's excellent, but, you know, it, it does drain your funds um, and rent. Uh, I wouldn't say it's like New York where, the, where you're either rich and having a great time or, or poor and hating it. So, yeah. you, know, you know what I mean. Uh, I gave Carlotta the chance to nominate an underdog there. I'm going to give Melkin and Daniel the same chance. Daniel, you first. And, and given that Carlotta <laughs> is clearly and just shamelessly made a, a, a home crowd umpire's pick of Porto, go ahead and name somewhere from your home country. I've, I've abandoned any pretense of <laughs> yeah. trying to impose impartiality here. I mean, I won't, I won't name my hometown Toronto because it's just 
it's got its issues. It's got its great kind of like being present in, in New York City or, or somewhere like that. But uh, I bang on about this all the time. And I think it's really underrated. Montreal, I think it's a wonderful city. I went there once, yeah. thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah, it's it's quite affordable for, for a lot of people. And it does have its issues for sure. But for a small, large city, I mean, around uh, a few million people, there's a lot going for it. I think it's a fantastic, culturally interesting, rich in the arts, rich in history, amazing food, amazing museums. I think you can get a lot done there if you can deal with the winter, because summer is a whole other beast. It's, it's, it's night and day. Malcolm? Hel- Helsinki. I've never lived there, but from the time I spent there, it just seems like a city where people have a great connection with nature, uh, excellent sort of, you know, um, job prospects, um, generally quality incredibly high there. It's just a very progressive city. And, you know, you finish work at like four or five o'clock. There's a great deal of respect for your personal time and your, your sort of you know, per- personal welfare. Um, you can and really you, get out and make the yeah. most of that 90 minutes of daylight. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And, uh, and yeah, and it doesn't seem too crazy expensive to live in. You know, yeah. don't go eat out every night and you'll be fine. Do you <laughs> okay. know what I should point out here, Andrew? Is, as I, actually, I was surprised by the lack of northern European cities in that list but from The Economist. Maybe if we go a little bit further down, they'd yeah. be in there. Cities yeah. like Helsinki and things like that, Oslo. But the city we should point out that that would be another sleeper for me and is really great is Hamburg. It is in the top 10 of the, yes, the monocle list. And Malcolm just came back from there because we launched our guide. Both of us were there to write the guidebook. And I would say for a small, smaller European city, that would be my that would be my go to for sure. sure. And seamless plug there yeah. for our, our new <laughs> Hamburg guidebook. Uh, and I will just copy paste my standard recommendation for Tirana, Albania, when this <laughs> subject is discussed. Seriously, it's a great city. Lots to do. Not expensive. Food's great. People. People are nice. Can't recommend it highly enough. Uh, we will take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Daniel Bates, Melkin Charchoglian and Carlotta Ribello. Coming up next, are casinos a good bet for urban regeneration? Download the free Monocle 24 app today to tune in wherever in the world you happen to be. Whether you're catching up on the news on your daily commute, enjoying a little cultural nourishment during your morning run, or seeking some recipe inspiration around the kitchen table. The Monocle 24 app allows you to tune in live or download your favourite shows to enjoy later. Get started by downloading the Monocle 24 app today. Monocle 24, keeping an eye and an ear on the world. You're back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Carlotta Ribello, Daniel Bache and Milken Charchoglian. And let us look now at New York State, where Governor Andrew Cuomo has recoiled from a potentially lucrative generator of revenue, i.e. the issuing of new casino licences. As it stands, the state is observing a moratorium on new casinos until 2023, and Cuomo seems disinclined to rethink this. On the one hand, this seems counterintuitive. It is almost impossible to lose money running casinos unless you're Donald Trump. On the other, and though Cuomo's concerns seem more purely administrative, it is far from clear that gambling premises necessarily improve the neighbourhoods in which they are established. Um, Daniel and Malcolm here in the studio, first of all, are either of you regular casino goers? Not a regular casino goer, but I enjoy like a private game of cards. Okay, Daniel? I could get down with that. You know what? I used to live in Calgary. I lived there for a long time in my late teens, early 20s, and I didn't take full advantage of going to the casinos that they have there in the city centre because I thought it was a novelty, and I never really stopped to think that 
there's Vegas. There are cities where people actually go because it's banned in other places. And I could have gone any time. And no, I didn't go. Uh, Carlotta, yeah. while you are in Los Angeles, are you planning to do the, the Hunter Thompson cannonball run to Las Vegas in order to do the casino thing or not? Uh, not this time around, Andrew, maybe for the next trip. Uh, but, I mean, I'm not a regular casino goer, but uh, in my hometown, you know, uh, in Funchal in Madeira, it's an island and we have a casino, so you get bored easily. So as soon as you turn 18, it's kind of the thing you do. You just go there, hang out, play a bit of poker and, um, and you know, some of the slot machines and, you know, hopefully uh, earn some money for then a fun night out. Like, it's such a regular thing and uh, for us growing up that is not even seen as you know the dangers of gambling you just you know you're bored in an island and you want to be entertained and it's funny now whenever i go back to you know or walk or drive past it and you can immediately tell when there's a big um, cruise ship on on the port of the city because the entire crew uh, you know heads over to the casinos since they're not allowed to gamble while on board uh, so this it's interesting to see the culture uh, that surrounds it and actually how you know the casinos can drive uh, at least a bit of the economy for any given city. Okay, well, I, th- I think Daniel and Melkin, if we are going to play cards, let's not invite Carlotta. I think it, it sounds like she's going to have the edge in experience. Yeah. Uh, but Melkin, there is a, a thing here that there is a, a certain squeamishness, I think, uh, about casinos that there isn't among other kind of premises of entertainment. People get vexed by the idea of a casino opening in a street near them that they wouldn't if it was, you know, I don't know, a cinema or a theatre or a bar or something. Is is that reasonable? I think so, yeah, because, I mean, there are a lot of addictive things in the world that you simply have to learn how to navigate uh, as an adult, but gambling is just one of those things where it could easily wipe you out in one evening and there's no comeback from it. You know, drugs... Okay, I and- definitely want to play cards with Melbourne. <laughs> <laughs> I, could, I could ruin both of you. But, you know, say alcoholism, you know, you, 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 you wouldn't be able to drink yourself to death in one night necessarily. You know, it's, but, but Cassini, you could go in one night and come out with nothing left. It ruins people's lives. And, it, you know, a game of cards between friends is nice. It's, 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 a, it's for fun. But institutionalized gambling where it's literally designed just to rip you off, just to get the money out of you mm. and, like, take advantage of all your vulnerability as a human being and your addictiveness. That's terrible. Mm. There's, a, there's a case of a, a massive casino opening in Vladivostok in uh, eastern Russia to supposedly attract Chinese t- t- big money tourists. But all it's done is just turn this, like, fairly impoverished eastern Russian city into, like, a gambling addict because there's nothing else to do there so people just go and gamble it's ruined the city and this Mm. casino's gotten rich Um, Daniel is it a question of the kind of establishment that is opened I mean I understand what Melkin's saying in that near where I live in London there are a you know bookmakers on the high street in which no one I don't think goes into anymore in order to place bets on horse races or anything they are just uh, you know sheds in which those fixed odds betting terminals are are kept and I have to say none of the people hanging around in and outside those venues strike me as among life's winners as such they are they are clearly very unhappy, very troubled people mm. who have developed a, a, an utterly unhealthy relationship with these machines. But that said, I've been to casinos in the US, in Las Vegas and in Elko, Nevada, and, and found them thoroughly pleasant, agreeable and sociable places. Is, is it a question of the kind of place that you're trying to establish? I think so. As a hospitality venue, as you say, they can be wonderful. I mean, I've never been to Vegas. I have no interest in going there, but I think on that level, it really does work as a tourism driver, as a, as a money driver. But then again, you have to have a lot of money to be there. 
for the most part. So that's the level of have and have not. If we compare it to what Melcon's saying in, in, in these places, preying on people that have addictions or, you know, have problems, I think that is a huge issue. So they can be good, but yeah, but that's, again, a, a question of have and have not. Okay, well, finally tonight, uh, we will turn to Los Angeles from where Carlotta has been joining us. And one of the things that everyone always says about Los Angeles is that it's a city attuned almost exclusively to the needs of the car, with little regard for any other sort of transport. And one of the reasons everyone always says that is that it's true. Los Angeles is, however, especially rough on cyclists. Bicycling Magazine has declared Los Angeles the worst cycling city in America, with reasons up to and including the 21 cyclists killed on Los Angeles roads last year. City authorities are aware of the problem and three years ago launched a plan to reduce deaths among cyclists and indeed pedestrians. Deaths among cyclists and pedestrians have, however, increased. Um, Carlotta, are those deaths increasing because of the new initiative or is this, are they unconnected to the phenomena that it's just the new initiative just isn't making any difference to something that would have happened anyway? Um, I think it would have happened anyway. And it's uh, uh, what really strikes me here and speaking to a couple of people uh, here about this story is how uh, the main problem is really is education for uh, drivers, for car uh, uh, road users, uh, because while you have this sort of initiative to get people, you know, to be healthier and, um, you know, to be more conscious about uh, emissions and to, you know, uh, improve their city by cycling, um, you do not have the same sort of initiative to, you know, make drivers learn how to actually, you know, share the road. And uh, you often see, you know, a cycle lane that it's only cycle la- uh, lane in name here. Literally, it's, you know, um, lick of paint on the floor and suddenly it is a cycle lane, but you have cars turning and using it as well. And complete disrespect for uh, cyclists. I wouldn't dare getting on two wheels in the city, uh, I would confess. And uh, But it really, it really is striking how this sort of initiative can go on without, you know, uh, urban interventions like separate uh, cycle lanes, for example, or, uh, you know, uh, elevated, some sort of difference. But no, you simply are on the same road and uh, this cannot be, um, this cannot go on because it really is very dangerous. Just to follow that up quickly, Carlotta, it's a while since I've been to Los Angeles and I don't recall seeing anybody on a bicycle on any of the visits I ever made. Has it become a thing? Are there people actually trying in noticeable numbers? Yes, people are actually trying. And if you head um, over to, you know, areas like uh, Silver Lake or, or even around Venice, you will see not only people cycling, but also um, uh, stations for, uh, you know, for you to pick up a bike if you want, like sort of like bike sharing schemes throughout the city, which is quite a novelty as well. Uh, you wouldn't see that before, um, you know, and before you, you probably would head to uh, Venice and see Venice Beach and see people cycling on um, the by the waterfront. But in this case, I'm telling you like around the mentioning around the area you know actually on the road um, and uh, as I've been going through the city um, there are areas where literally uh, you don't see anyone and then suddenly you turn a corner and you have all these pickup points you'll have you know bike shops you'll have uh, people that are using that intersection as their main one and then now what I'm trying still to figure out is if the reason why you have this kind of like cycling hotspots in the city is because um, uh, that's where you know the people that are using uh, a bike for c- their commute 
happen to live or work all around there or because those roads have actually been identified as uh, safer and you know bearing in mind th these news that and the story that we're talking about it wouldn't surprise me you know if i had to get on a bike here to you know get from point a to b if i knew that may might take me a bit longer but the road is 100 percent or much safer you would make that detour wouldn't you uh daniel mm. Is there an issue, not just in Los Angeles, but in general, and I, I am shamelessly dumping this question <laughs> on you to yeah. avoid taking any responsibility for answering it myself. Is there an issue which is under-discussed, which is the behaviour of cyclists? To an extent, Because yeah, the, the yeah. trouble is, as I have learnt previously, when you try to make this point, uh, you yeah. spend the next two weeks being deluged with angry emails from people yeah. who... Yeah, well. to an extent. Uh, in London, there's just so many cyclists because it just can be the best way to get around and, and everything else. There's a lot of traffic. Uh, uh, the tube is clogged. It's expensive. Uh, but there are people that make a bad name for cyclists or anyone and they just break the law. And that's too bad. And that has to stop. I will say coming from Toronto, where it's really bad, there's a lot of cycling deaths and they have a half-hearted approach to tackling this as Los Angeles sounds like it does. Um, and their vision zero of no pedestrian and cyclist deaths has completely failed. I will say in Toronto, people are very aggressive on drivers. I will say in London, they're actually not that bad. But the cyclists are, I would say it's 50-50. There are a lot of people that break the law, as do pedestrians. I mean, nine out of 10 accidents that I see on the road, almost see, like near accidents I see on the road, are from people looking at their phones crossing the street. So I would say they're worse offenders than cyclists. Uh, and just f finally, Malcolm, the recurring theme of this episode seems to have been London actually kind of underrated in many respects. It, is London becoming anything like a model for a cycling city or a city adapting to cyclists? I think so. It, in terms, it's done very well. It's excellent because, uh, you know, it, it's not like a small European city where you can integrate cycling paths into the pedestrian areas. It's got to be this sort of fast-paced thing. It, but they've done well in order to create these super highways. It just is quite intense. That's the only problem. Mm. But that's the size of London that's responsible for that. Okay, well, that does bring us to the end of today's show. Malcolm Charchogli and Carlotta Ribello and Daniel Bates, thank you for joining us at Midori House. The show was produced by Daniel, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Teresa Marvulli. Our studio manager was Christy Evans. Music next at 1900. Marcus Hippie with the menu. There's more on the day's main stories on the daily at 2200. Midori House returns on Monday at 1800 London time. I'm Andrew Muller. Have a great weekend.